praise be to God. Uh, I want to share this morning a message uh, that's on my heart, and uh, uh, I, I had actually had it prepared last week, but I felt like the Lord uh, had something else for us last week, but I want to share with you today a message from uh, the book of Philippians, and, and I'm kind of going to tell a story. We're going to go into some of the scriptures, and I'm kind of going to kind of tell a story from the life of the Apostle Paul, and I want to read beginning in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19, and this is the word of the Lord. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into the partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We ask God that the anointing of the Holy Spirit would be upon us to hear and receive into our inner man, that we would grow in you, grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. God, I pray with the agreement of your people, your saints, that you would anoint my lips and tongue to speak the word that you've appointed for this day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You know, I love the book of Philippians. Uh, <clears throat> when I was a student in seminary, uh, it's kind of a standard thing that after you take your introductory class in New Testament Greek, uh, to go to the next level, you have to start that exercise of actually translating the text, right? You're not just dealing with verb charts or memorizing vocabulary lists. You're actually translating. And kind of the stock book to go to is Philippians. And so uh, over 30 years ago, I translated Philippians and kind of learned some of the ins and the outs of it. And Philippians is a favorite book for a lot of people because uh, every chapter, it seems, there are these sort of keynote favorite passages. Uh, in, uh, in chapter 1, you have, um, and God will complete the good work that he began in you. How many that love that verse? He's, gonna, he's faithful to complete the good work that he began in you. And then later in that same chapter, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's another beautiful one. In chapter 2, let this attitude also be in you, this mind also be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant. Uh, and then it goes through the whole Christ hymn and it says that every knee in heaven and 
on earth and under the earth would bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful, uh, beautiful verse in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, you have those powerful passages where Paul says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Beautiful verses and passages. Uh, in chapter 4, uh, more beauty, and I love this passage because it's got uh, 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And then, of course, the famous 4.19 that says uh, that my God will provide uh, uh, for all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. This, uh, this passage and really this story is my uh, choice for broaching the subject matter that Paul calls giving and receiving. The blessing that, that he is referring to here in the context of his relationship with, uh, with this particular church. Um, now, the issue of giving and receiving is kind of a hot potato for preachers. I want to tell you, I've been a pastor both domestically and internationally for a number of years. And I have never done, if you can believe it, I have never done a series on uh, the, the subject of giving and receiving. I've touched on it at different points. But as I began to kind of look into it, I began to say, man, there's so much. There's so much riches and there's so much blessing that's in there that I thought I'm going to be remiss if I don't uh, touch upon this subject for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of God's people. Now, why is it a hot potato, though? Why is it difficult for uh, some uh, pastors to touch on the matter of giving and receiving? Well, for one thing, it's, uh, it's been a, uh, a subject matter that's actually been abused. Some people have, in fact, abused it and uh, distorted the biblical teaching on giving and receiving, just like other teachings have been abused uh, this teaching has been abused, and so um, the, the, one of the teachings that's close to my heart is the teaching of the second coming of the Lord Jesus, to just kind of give an example. Second coming of the Lord Jesus is a very powerful teaching uh, that was kind of a boilerplate. It was kind of like a stock teaching in, in the church, especially throughout the 20th century. A lot of people came to Jesus. A lot of missionaries went to the mission field. A lot of people repented and got right with God because they knew Jesus could come any time. Was it true when that word was preached? Absolutely. Jesus could come any time. Just the fact that he didn't didn't mean that he couldn't, right? Uh, and I've never met anybody who said, oh, I got right with God. I, I came to the altar. I, I got saved. I got right with God because I heard that Jesus might come soon and he didn't come. And, oh, there was all that sinning that I missed out on. You know, I could have... I could have had a broken body and a broken spirit and a broken family. And oh, just think all the stuff I missed out on just because Jesus, and it turned out Jesus didn't come. I've never heard anybody say that. But some things happened at the end of the last century. Um, and there was some abuse of that teaching, right? Some people kind of manipulated and wrote some hokey books and, um, you know, set dates. And then people got disappointed. And now, you know, a lot of times people don't preach on the coming of the Lord at all, Right? But is it true that Jesus could come any time? How many think I ought to preach on that sometime soon? Amen? So I will. I will. I'll, I'll, when I say I'll preach on it soon, Jesus is coming soon, and I'll preach on it soon. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, 
Jesus lives forever and my time is limited, so uh, I will preach on that soon. But just because that's been, uh, that teaching's been abused, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? You don't stop teaching on the coming of the Lord. In the same way, teaching on giving has been abused, but that doesn't mean we're going to not teach on it. Um, there's another reason why I think it's a hot potato, and I think that our culture has become very cynical. I think our culture has become cynical about money. It's been, become cynical about church, sadly. Um, I remember the first time, and I was just a kid, when I read this verse. Uh, in verse 17, Paul says to the Philippians, Not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The NIV says, I seek that which might be credited to your account. I'm not looking for a, a gift here, but... And there was a part of me, my unregenerate heart, that said, oh, yeah, right, sure, Paul. <laughs> you know, sure, sure you're not looking for a gift. Paul was in uh, house arrest, and when uh, the way house arrest worked with the Romans, you could get visitors all the time. And the reason why they allowed visitors is when you're under house arrest, it's not like prisons today where the jailers provide the food. You know, you go to the cafeteria and you think of the scenes of all the movies, you know, where the, the prison guard, prisoners go and the guards are there and other prisoners are serving up the, the slop and whatever and people are eating there in the cafeteria. That's not the way jail worked then in Rome. It's not the way it works, frankly, in most of the world. You have to have, uh, you have, to have a family bring you food, otherwise you starve. And so they allowed that people to come. So Paul was dependent on outsiders uh, bringing, him, uh, bringing him food. That's why the Philippians were, uh, were sending him stuff. And so I, I, I can remember my first reaction, and I had to repent uh, because I, here we're, t we're dealing with words that are absolutely sincere and true. And that's something that our culture has kind of gone cold on, right? So we want to we wanna get that cynicism away from us. So this is all the more reason why we want to talk about these things. Now, let me, let, me, uh, let me give a little bit of a background to this situation. Paul wrote the book of Philippians. Our best estimate is that Paul wrote this book around the year A.D. 60. We're not absolutely sure. There are some uh, Bible scholars that debate kind of for the sake of the discussion uh, because this is one of the few books where Paul doesn't give absolute statement about where he's writing from. Other places, it's pretty clear where he's writing from. But in this case, we're just not absolutely sure. So there's some theories that he was in this city or that city. But overwhelmingly, the, the, the opinion is that he was in Rome. And that means that he was writing around the year 60, because that's when he arrived in Rome, and he was there. And... Um, He's writing to the Philippians in response to this uh, messenger that had come to him uh, from Philippi. And this young man's name was Epaphroditus. Um, and so the situation was, he's there in Rome, word reaches um, Philippi, hey, Paul has uh, has uh, been taken to Rome. He's there awaiting trial. He's in house arrest. He's going to have needs. And so they, they recruited this young man from, a, from their midst. They took an offering. They put the offering in the hand of that young man, and they sent him running, right? And so 
Um, Epaphroditus would have taken a well-known Roman road. Vestiges of that road actually still exist today. It's called the Via Egnatia. It runs east-west across what is now northern Greece and through Albania. He would have taken that road. Uh, he would have taken that road west, would have gotten on a boat across the Adriatic Sea, got to Italy, and then made his way to Rome. And by the time he got to Rome, or shortly thereafter, Epaphroditus got dog sick, got very, very sick, and was, uh, Paul says, at the point of death. And so Paul uh, is there with Epaphroditus, who's supposed to be helping him, and uh, Paul's having to nurse Epaphroditus. And so as soon as Epaphroditus gets well, he writes, a, he writes the book of Philippians. He puts that letter in Epaphroditus' hand, and he sends Epaphroditus back. Right, So that's how the book of Philippians got back to Philippi, was the guy that they had sent with the offering as the guy taking the, the letter back. And Paul is thanking them profusely for the help, um, said, sorry, I had to send him back, but he got sick, and then he, worse, he got homesick, and he got discouraged, so I felt like it's better to send him back. And that's how we know of what was happening here, that circumstance. Because Epaphroditus got sick, that's how we have the book of Philippians, because Paul wrote this and was thanking them. So this is, this is the situation. Now, um, Paul first came to uh, Philippi 10 years earlier. So the church that he's writing to is a church that's almost exactly a decade old. And he's had this relationship with them uh, and he fleshes it out in his words. He's had this relationship with them during that whole time. And the situation of how he came to Philippi can be read in Acts chapter 16. Paul was traveling throughout what is now the country of Turkey, then known as Asia Minor. He was traveling, uh, encouraging churches and trying to get into some new areas. And he, he got to the point of what is sort of northwestern Turkey, and he wanted to head south. He wanted to go south, and he wanted to go into the area what is now Ephesus. And God had that for him in the future, but not right then. And, and, and it says the Holy Spirit stopped him. And he said, well, what am I supposed to do? And God appeared, uh, sent him a dream, a man from Macedonia pleading, saying, come over and help us in Macedonia. That's known as the Macedonian call. And so they, Paul woke up, said, God's called us to go over to Macedonia. And so he got in a, on a boat in the city of Troas, you might know that as the ancient city of Troy. Anybody here of Troy, the Trojan Wars? Got, in that, got on a boat in that city. He crossed the Aegean Sea, and he arrived in Mesopotamia. Now, a couple years ago, I went to this exact spot. It's really fascinating. Philippi is not a port city. Philippi is actually inland a little ways, and there was a port city on the coast. It's known as a service port. And that's, that was a city called Neapolis. And it was, it was a little harbor there, a little prominent, a little peninsula. And he arrived there, and then he walked up this road. He would have had Timothy and Silas and Luke with him. They walked up that road. They walked inland a, a few miles, and they arrived at Philippi. Philippi was a prominent Roman city uh, of the time. It's in the shadow of a big, uh, kind of a big mountain that was, in ancient times, was used as a defensive fort. But now there's this city that's spread out below. And they would have walked through that whole city. They would have walked uh, kind of from the southeast up to the northwest. And there, um, they met their who was to become their first member. 
Um, there was no synagogue in that city. That was kind of Paul's typical way of uh, starting a church was he'd go to the synagogue and talk to him about uh, the prophecies that foretold the Messiah in the, in the Old Testament because the, the Jews would have uh, had a, uh, a mind to think that way. And so that's the way he started. And, and city after city, you can read about that in the book of Acts. In this case, uh, there was no synagogue in the city. And so the next best thing was to go to a place where there's water because people who are of a Jewish persuasion or Gentiles who are sort of taking up Jewish religion would always be near water for purposes of ceremonial cleansing. And so he went to a, 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 the, the shore of a little, we would call it a creek almost, but they called it the, the River Gangitis. And so there's this river that flows right there. And he went there and he met these ladies that were gathering. And he met a woman named Lydia. And Lydia was uh, a merchant. She was a seller of purple. The name Lydia comes from uh, a very wealthy kingdom in Asia Minor that was in years past. So she was named after this wealthy area. And Paul... Uh, and Luke and the others met her and, and baptized her in the name of the Lord. She came to the Lord. God touched her heart, the word of God says. And that was the seed of the church. And then you have the famous story of how Paul set the slave girl free who had an had a unclean spirit who could tell fortunes. And he set her free. And that got him in a lot of trouble. That's where they were uh, beaten and thrown into the prison. I've seen the prison where they were uh, thrown into. It's just kind of a hole in the ground, uh, and they were thrown into that prison, and they were singing praises at night, and God sent an earthquake. And through that, the prison guard and his whole family came to Jesus. And then, and then they had to leave the city, right, because of the persecution. And they went on to Thessalonica, uh, which was to the west, and then from there they went to Berea. And from there they went down uh, to Corinth, and they spent a lot more time at Corinth. And that's really what Paul is talking about here. He says, when I left Macedonia, uh, you, you sent aid again and, and again. So when he first went to Thessalonica, he sent aid. And then from there, he went on and he went down to southern Greece. And very clearly, he was supported down there because he didn't he was able, it says, uh, once Timothy and Silas came, because he left them behind, behind to take care of things, when Timothy and Silas came, it was clear they came with a gift. They came with a gift from these churches. Again, giving and receiving. Philippi sent that gift. And so it says very clearly in the book of Acts, once Timothy and Silas came, Paul gave up tent making. He, he had been t doing tent making. But once they came, he gave up tent making and gave himself completely to the word. Why? Why, once they came, was he able to give up tent making? Because he came with an offering from them. He didn't, need to, he didn't need to work anymore. He could dedicate himself full time to the gospel, right? And so there's this uh, sense that we have of uh, this interaction. And, and some of it is said explicitly here. Others you kind of have to read between the lines and put together the pieces like a puzzle. But you see this powerful relationship that this church has with Paul and you think wow Lydia is a vendor in purple and she's got this name uh, that's given to her after this wealthy kingdom and it appears uh, you know that they're well-heeled people right and they're able to send on this money and think of the impact that that had think of the impact that it had that Paul was spending his time working and laboring with his hands. He talks later to the Corinthians quite a bit about that. He said, when I was with you, I worked hard with my hands and, 
and I wasn't a burden to you in any way. Well, what did that enable him to do? Because that money came, he was able to give himself fully to the gospel. He was able to establish the church. He was able to work full, full time in the work of the Lord because <clears throat> others were making this sacrifice. So it appears that the wealth of the uh, Philippians um, aided in the planting of the church in other places, even, even as quickly as Thessalonica. He was able to use their offerings and, and, and uh, establish the work of the Lord. Now, that's not the whole story. The rest of the story, anybody remember Paul Harvey would always say, now this is the rest of the story, right? So I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. Paul, after he left Philippi and, and Thessalonica, really Berea, Macedonia, that nor Macedonia is northern, what we would call northern Greece. After he leaves Macedonia, he goes down, he spends 18 months in, um, in Corinth. Up to that point, it was the longest time he had spent in any place other than in Antioch, his home church. And then from there, he goes back. He goes back to Palestine. Then he goes on another tour. He makes his way through Turkey a second time. This is what we call his third missionary journey. And he goes through, and then he lands at Ephesus. And he's at Ephesus for two years. He's at Ephesus for two years. And after being in Ephesus for two years... There's a riot because he's causing upheaval in the worship of idols. And Paul makes his way north and, and, uh, and heads through Macedonia. This is the second time he's been there. And it was seven years later. It was seven years after his founding visit. His founding visit, this is very impactful to me. Maybe, maybe, maybe not to everybody, but it's very impactful to me when I think about this with the different missionary work that we've done and the different ministry in different churches. Paul was probably in Philippi for no longer than a month in his founding visit. It was a very short time. He refers to it several times. Very, very briefly, he was with them. But that time with him, that, that founding visit, was a time that was electric. It was just, there was bonding that was went on. There was some chemistry that went on. And he, he was forced out. And the, and the pressures of ministry and persecution kept him from visiting them again personally for seven years. And after seven years and all this other travel and ministry, he's finally able to visit them again. We don't know what uh, happened as far as any sort of dialogue, words spoken. We don't have any record of, of what that, um, that second visit seven years later was. But we do have a little bit of a removed testimony, and it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, 2 Corinthians was written right at this time, during Paul's visit to Macedonia, in, in about the year 57, and almost certainly it was written from Thessalonica. So Paul comes up, uh, the, he heads north along the, that western shore of Turkey. He crosses over like he did the, those years before. He goes to Philippi, then he travels over to Thessalonica, and there he meets, he meets Titus. And that's another story in itself, but he had sent Titus to troubleshoot a situation in, in Corinth, 
and they had kind of come up on either side of the Aegean Sea, like kind of like in a mirror image of each other. While Paul was going up on the on the eastern side, uh, Titus was going up on the western side, and they met there in Thessalonica. And there Paul writes 2 Corinthians, and he puts 2 Corinthians in Titus's hand. And part of the message is this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's how we were almost certainly that it was written from Thessalonica, because if he would have said, church, he was just talking about the Philippians, he would have just said singular. But by then he had already been to multiple churches and Thessalonica was, the, was a big city there. So he says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. And accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now this is the situation. There was famine in Jerusalem. There was famine in Jerusalem. This is an attested fact. This is historically attested in other sources that we have. And what had happened was in the, in the uh, eastern Mediterranean, there had been excessive rainfall, and that rainfall, not a lack of rain, but too much rain. And that, that excessive rain had caused an outbreak of, of mold and spores that had destroyed the crops. And so um, grain was scarce. Now what happens when, when food supply goes down? What happens to the price of bread? It goes way up, right? And so, so there was famine. There was starvation that was happening, and the saints in Jerusalem were suffering. But in other parts of the Mediterranean, everything was fine. And so Paul, when he sent Titus, when he left Ephesus to go north, he sent Titus in a boat right across, straight across the cor to Corinth. And he told them, he told the Corinthians through Titus, look, take an offering. Corinth was a wealthy city. I'm going to say it again. Corinth was a rich city. It was a port city. It was one of the top economic centers of the whole Roman world. And the, and the church there, by all accounts, was a wealthy church. And so he told them, look, we're taking this, we're going to the churches throughout the Gentile world. And he, and he said, Paul says, it's very, it's very clear. Um, the Gentiles have received spiritually, and so um, they should give materially to the, to the, uh, to the church in Jerusalem. That's, that was Paul's reasoning. And so he's going to these churches, and he's saying, hey, everybody, everybody pitch in according to their means. And so uh, he was, through Titus, that's why he refers to completing the act of grace. Through Titus, he tells them. And then Titus leaves and goes north to meet Paul up in Macedonia, and that's where they meet. But by then, Paul had had an experience that he didn't expect. He knew 
something that we otherwise wouldn't know. The Macedonian churches were poor. They weren't wealthy. We get, we get kind of a false impression from Lydia and that she sold purple. But the reality is the church at Philippi was probably more made up of people like the jailer. It was probably more of a blue-collar church. A jailer would have been a, um, he would have been like a retired soldier. He wouldn't have had much of a pension. He has to work as a jailer. And so they didn't have a whole lot of money. And so Paul, pricked by their sacrifice, the church at Thessalonica, also poor, and pricked by their sacrifice, they begged him. They said, please, we want to be part of this. Please, we want to participate. And uh, Paul said something powerful. He says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. In other words, I'm going to interpret that for you. This wasn't just because of a personal connection with us. This wasn't just because they felt obliged to us or because what we had done or our history, the personal history that I have with them. They recognized this was unto the Lord. This goes back to what Paul says to the Philippians in, Phili- uh, in Philippians chapter 4 where he, he says, thank you for renewing your concern for me. He speaks in very warm personal terms, right? Thank you for your concern for me. I'm amply supplied. Epaphroditus has, has carried this gift to me. But then he says this. The punchline is this. This is a fragrant offering acceptable unto God. He recognizes and he gives them credit that, hey, this isn't just because you're concerned about your buddy. This is an offering unto God. And that, that statement is what triggers when Paul says, and my God will provide for all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He recognizes it's from the Lord. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying, this isn't, this isn't a personal thing. And he said, frankly, I'm, you know, this is my paraphrase, frankly, I'm surprised. Because I thought them begging to be a part of it was like, oh, Paul, this is important to you personally. This is kind of your thing. And so we want to be, we want to support you. We want to be part of your thing. I'm going to, I'm going to say something here. I'm going to say it um, several times. I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to hear me say this several times as we talk about this theme. Do you know how a Christian and a church becomes mature in this matter, they go from a place of local tribal loyalty in their heart to a place of recognizing this is about the kingdom. There's a lot of people who say, hey, it's, it's my church. It's my church. And so I'm going to support my church. Hey, there's good, there's good in that. No question about it, there's good in it. But the higher level is you say, I'm going to give to the church because it's the Lord's church. Right? There's a higher level there. And that's what Paul is recognizing about these people. He's saying they've graduated to a higher level. So this is what's so powerful to me in verse 7. He says, but as you excel in everything. Now he's talking to the Corinthians. And they did excel. It was a big city. It was a prosperous city. Um, There are people there. I mean, I could, that's a different study. Study 1 and 2 Corinthians and and that theme. But 
there were people that were very wealthy. There were people that were um, government officials. There were people of great influence. There were people that were orators. When I went to Corinth almost two uh, years ago, you can go to the excavation, the archaeological excavation of the theater area of that, of that city. And the ruins are there, the pillars of the temples and the streets that Paul would have walked, the bema seat, the judgment seat that they dragged him in front of. It's all still there. And you go to the theater area, and there's a pavement there. And in that pavement is marked, this was, this was built by, this was paid for by Erastus. Erastus is mentioned prominently by Paul as the director of public works. In those days, to be a politician in a city, you didn't get paid, you paid. You paid to be a politician. You paid to be a senator. You paid to be an official. It was a position of honor, so you paid to do it. And you had to put up or shut up and get out. And so whenever uh, you, go, you do these archaeological digs, you're looking at plaques and you're looking at pavements and walls and buildings. There's always a plaque somewhere, if you can find it, that says so-and-so built this. Why? Because they're showing that they're worthy of the position of authority and influence they've been given. Are you following me? And so right in the pavement right there, it says Erastus made this. Kind of like an Erastus was here. There's right there biblical evidence that Paul's friend was wealthy enough to lay that pavement. Those are the type of people that were at, at Corinth. And Paul says, look, there's a little bit of a kind of a Holy Ghost shaming that's going on. So it's like Paul's got them by their pinky finger and he's twisted. <laughs> These poor people up in Philippi and Thessalonica, they're begging to be part of this. And you down there, you're public orators and your city officials and you got all this stuff going for you and he says you excel in these things but I want you to excel in the grace of giving now there's a tremendous truth here tremendous truth and we sang today in several songs we sang about grace we, we, we talked about the grace of the father in restoring us we talked about Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Generally speaking, there's maturity. There's, there's a maturity that we can uh, strive to achieve, and there's immaturity. But I want, I want to tell you this. It's uneven. It's uneven. There were gifts in my life that God developed and there were other gifts that I didn't have that the Lord needed to develop in me. I was growing in the Lord, but there was an unevenness. And that was, there's still an unevenness, but there was an unevenness that was very pronounced in my early days of knowing the Lord. And Paul is pointing out in the, to the Corinthians, look, you excel in certain areas, but I want you to excel in the grace of giving. Giving is a grace. And what I'm talking about here is a virtue. You can be virtuous in one area, but need development in another. And the grace of giving is like a spiritual muscle. It's something you have to develop. It's not something you're just like, oh, Lord, lay it on me. Just lay it on me. It's like leading, uh, leading a Bible study. 
first time I led a Bible study, I was awkward. I didn't know what order to do it in. How do I do this? But I grew in that grace. Are you following me? That was something that I grew in through practice. And Paul is, is pointing something out. He's saying, you know, the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the, uh, the, the Macedonians in general, they might not have graces that you have, but I'll tell you what they do have. They have the grace of giving. Because it's not a question of the amount of wealth that, that you have. It's a question of developing that grace to give. It's, it's persisting in it. It's persevering in it. It's making sacrifices. And as you give, then the grace of God comes in and you strengthen, you're strengthened in that grace. You grow in that grace. There's a blessing that comes as you develop um, that grace. I remember when we were missionaries um, and our home state, we had supporting churches in different parts of the country, but overwhelmingly our support was out of the state of Kentucky because that was our home state at the time. And I can remember being at kind of a general convention um, where all these different pastors were come together. There's multiple missionaries. We were just one of many. And um, one of the network officials called up a pastor um, from a little church in Appalachia. Um, he was a church in the area of Corbin, Kentucky. Does anybody, anybody know what Corbin's fav famous for? Corbin? The birthplace of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Right? We drove right past the original KFC. The chicken's every bit as good out here, so you don't need to go there. But in this little town, this little eastern Kentucky town, there's a little church. And that church, I want to tell you, you probably drive by and wouldn't think to look twice at that church. But that church was like Samson when it came to missions giving. They were strong. They had developed the grace to give. And, and they, were, they were giving a tremendous amount to the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you, this church is actually strong in missions giving. What we need is we need to develop the grace for the plodding one foot in front of the other support of the local ministry. It's a, it's a grace that we can grow in, that we can develop. Now, there's givers. But this is something that everybody's got to just take to the Lord and say, Father, thank you for the grace. Thank you for the grace that you've given me in this area and that area and the other area, but I'm asking you to strengthen me. This is a prayer that I have. God, make me strong, bold, strong, courageous in my giving. And God is going to help us I want to be like the Philippians. That's what I want to be. I want to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Hallelujah. Father, we praise you. We praise you for your goodness. God, we thank you for this story and the example that we have of saints in the scriptures really our forefathers in the faith, without their faith and without their sacrifice, Lord, we might not be here, but you birthed that faith in them.
Father, we ask for a revelation of the Holy Spirit of God, that you would take us into your economy. Father, that we would give ourselves to you and we would recognize this is between us and you because there's no way we can do it in our own power and have it be truly the offering, the sacrifice, Lord, that you have called us to. Father, I pray for this church and I pray especially for these faithful saints who came out today. God, we ask for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. God, we ask for the anointing of your Holy Spirit. God, that you'd make us bold, strong. You'd develop this grace in us, God. Develop this grace. Develop this inner fortitude. Develop this perspective, this understanding of your ways. God, that you see things differently than we see things when we're left to ourselves. We ask, God, that you help us see things with your eyes. Father, let the day come, Lord, when in the courts of heaven you're able to boast of us just as Paul was able to boast of the Macedonians. God, we, we thank you for it. We thank you, Father, Lord, that this is a grace that can develop in us irrespective of where we are in our natural being, our employment, our walk, our natural resources. It's a grace that comes from heaven. We thank you for it. We thank you in advance for working this in us. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Let's stand. Let's sing this song together.